founders, what's going on. You guys know I love in-person events and they are back. The recording you're about to hear is from our most recent event where we had hundreds of founders come together, share intimate details, templates, KPIs, OKRs about their business. And it was something special, something special. We'd love to meet you in person. If you want to see the next live events we have coming up via our schedule, the link will be down below in the description. If you're listening on iTunes, check this out on YouTube. You'll see the links in the description, or you can just Google Founder Path or Latka next event. We'd love to see you in person. In the meantime, though, enjoy this recording. It's a good one. You are listening to Conversations with Nathan Latka, where I sit down and interview the top SaaS founders, like Eric Wan from Zoom. If you'd like to subscribe, go to getlatka.com. We've published thousands of these interviews, and if you want to sort through them quickly by revenue or churn, CAC, valuation, or other metrics, the easiest way to do that is to go to getlatka.com and use our filtering tool. It's like a big Excel sheet for all of these podcast interviews. Check it out right now at getlatka.com. Whose idea was it to IPO in the middle of a pandemic anyways? Zoom <laughs> Info is still founder-led. Henry Shuck is the CEO and started the company while he was in law school by putting $25,000 on his and his co-founders' credit cards. You know, we're investing for the long term. I'm focused on building this company into something much larger than it is today. Our team at Zoom Info is innovative. We're hardworking. We're always looking to define new possibles and we're just getting started. Three, two, one. Marketing platform Zoom Info open for trading earlier today. The company's CEO, Henry Shuck, joins us now remotely from his home outside of Portland. Zoom Info helps sellers find their next best customer. Whether you're a pallet manufacturer in Alabama or your Fortune 1000 technology company, Zoom Info helps sellers find those companies and find the buyers of those companies. We've got Zoom Info set to go public this very morning. How is the current environment affecting you? What advice would you give if another company was out there looking to come to market right now? Congratulations, it's always a big deal. Let's do this. Guys, before we meet that guy, welcome to Bowdercock. So guys, Henry Shuck, uh, we're thrilled to have him with us. Before you meet him though, I just want to say it's incredibly back in person. Uh, I hope it feels good. Does it feel good? Yeah. It feels good. Drink lots of coffee, keep your energy high. We've got outlets for every person, so if you get bored, you can just open your computer, look up occasionally to act like you're paying attention, and go back to your Gmail, okay? So it perfect. There's plenty of extra seats on this side of the room if you want to grab one of those um, as well. Um, so let, let's let's get into some of the content here. Um, Henry's story is really incredible, right? So many many years ago, uh, before uh, he was now a publicly traded SaaS founder, uh, I, I I don't know why he responded to cold email to come on the podcast, but he did, and I was so impressed with how he was building a company, how he was doing it, but specifically because he was creating multiple opportunities uh, for liquidation before IPO. There's some very non-traditional stuff that he sort of did, and I'm excited to have him teach us exactly how he did that. You, you bet, you bet, you bet. I'm glad you're here, man. 
Where you where you flying from? New York? San San Francisco. He's a San Francisco guy. I'm actually in Portland, but I was in San Francisco to. San Francisco is open now, huh? Yes. Okay. All right. Very cool. This is a little bit different attire than like dorm room days. <laughs> this is what I wear to work. What I wear to work. All right. So take us back in the story. Over the next 25 minutes, we're going to really chat about how you got going. Uh, where you are today, where you see markets going, some of the key things that you were important for you to hit your first $10 million in revenue, um, how you did a big secondary, $40 million bucks when you were 27 years old and what a secondary means, and now sort of pre-IPO metrics versus post-IPO metrics. So we'll have fun. That's all yeah, expected, right. right? Yep. No surprises yet? No surprises. All right. All right, so here we go. This is Dorm Room Henry. Dorm Room Henry, 25K in debt. Was that on student loans? I mean, I was actually like $150,000 in debt. You can't tell by my smile in this picture. But I was $150,000 in debt if you count law school, undergrad. And then when we started the business, I put $25,000 on my credit card. And my co-founder put $25,000 on his credit card. For some reason, Chase gave us this ridiculous limit. It made no sense for a 23-year-old. Uh, but that's how we funded the business. And, and what was the original idea? So you guys can follow along on the bottom of this chart and see sort of Henry's product launches as they got going. But you started in 2007 with, with org charts. Why org charts? I had worked for a similar company when I was in college. And we grew the company from about $300,000 in revenue as a lifestyle business to $5 million in revenue. At $5 million in revenue, it was like $4.8 million in EBITDA. And so there wasn't much of a business there. And so I left. I went to law school. And then we founded a, like a company that we wanted to actually build a company around and invest inside of. Uh, and so it was, it was a lot of it was a replication of that company, but done in a more professional, scalable way. And before we go to the next slide, just out of curiosity, um, stand up in the room if you're currently running. You're, you're a founder of a software company. Stand up real quick. Stand up. Don't raise your hand. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Okay. Let's let me stay standing. Also stand up if you, if you own, if you're a, own a little bit of a SaaS company. You're on the cap table of a SaaS company. Now, there we go. Okay, so I love how uh, we really want to curate this event. You guys are all operators. You all have upside. You're on the cap table. You all have equity. So good. That's, that's a good view. Now sit down. So Henry, take us into this deal, right? Explain first what a secondary is, how the opportunity came about in 2012, and how you negotiated this LOI. Yeah, this was a bad LOI for what it's worth. Uh, but uh, the business was profitable because we didn't know how to run a biz We didn't have an option otherwise. And so you had to build a profitable business because after the $25,000 of Chase financing ran out, there was no more money to run the business. So we ran the business in this really profitable way. And then we started getting calls. We got on the Inc. 500 list. And then we started getting calls from venture capital firms and private equity firms. The private equity firms ended up being the ones most interested in us because we had profitability and that's what they would give a multiple off of. And so Can you this give a sense of that real quick. How pro what was revenue in, in 2012? In 2012, revenue was uh, it was probably 20 million and it was like 10 million dollars of Profit. of profitability. Yeah. And so when the venture capital guys came in, they said, "Okay, Here's what we want to do. We want to buy 50% of the business. What is it? 70% of the business for $35 We got, we got a close-up, baby. We got a close-up of the LOI. Yeah. Jump in there. Some portion of the business we want to buy. And when we buy that business, we'll give you and your co-founder the dollars. Because the business is profitable, so the money doesn't Henry, need to go back. Henry, what do you mean the back. dollars? What, you want to say $40 million bucks? Was it $40 million here? Yeah, so the second highlight down on the, on the left, right, you can see... 
Uh, it, it specifically says part of this deal is buying Kirk and Henry, uh, co-founders, uh, 40 million bucks. This is sort of, right? Is this? Yep. Yep. Okay. No, that's right. Okay. You, okay. I can't you keep see going. It. I know. Sorry. Sorry. Um, sorry. Sorry. Can you guys see it from the tables when you look up? So that's that's risky, right? They can all see it and you can't. You're going off memory from yeah, and this was 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so buy the company, give us give us cash for in exchange for ownership in the business. And then the things you're thinking about here are like, do I want to give up control? Do I not want to give up control? Do I like these people? How is the board going to be set up? What do they want to do? My biggest mistake during this uh, was they asked me, what do you want to do after the investment? And in my head, it was like, well, you're going to give me $40 million. I could do whatever you want me to do. I don't, whatever, what do you want me to do? Um, and so they were like, well, you know, why don't we bring in a CEO? We'll bring in a professional CEO and they can run the company. And I was like, yeah, okay. You're 27 at the time. 20, here I'm, yeah, 27. Yep. And if you're going to give me that money, great, bring in a new CEO. I didn't really understand how business worked. There wasn't like networks of people like this really back then. Like Jason Lemkin was writing some stuff on Quora. That's it. That, that was the extent of That's the, a long time ago. Yeah. So, uh, so then he started introducing me to other CEOs and saying like, look, when, when we do the deal, we're going to bring in this professional CEO. And I was like, yeah, okay, great. Luckily, this deal fell apart, um, and I took a, we took a year and then kind of rebuilt some of the pieces of the business. And had I taken that deal, you know, I, would, I don't think I would have ever been a public company CEO. Well, just going back to that for a second, you can see the, the yellow highlight on the right, I believe, is the proposed post-cap post table deal. So you would, you'd be down to 10% effectively. They, they were buying up 90%. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's right. So what were some of the reasons you turned this down? Obviously, that's a big one. That's a big one. They actually retraded this deal. That retrading is like an industry term for, hey, I gave you an offer, and then after diligence, I changed the offer on you. I gave you a worse offer. Um, that's like also if you tell somebody that a firm retraded you, it's really bad for their reputation. <laughs> These guys retraded me right at the end. They said, oh, come down to San Francisco, have lunch with us. So I came down to San Francisco, and they were like, yeah, you know, there's some things in diligence we didn't like, and so we're going to cut the deal in half. Um, and then in a year from now, we'll have the right to buy the, the other half at the same rate as what we're proposing today. It was, like, really nasty. <laughs> And we'll help you figure out how to scale the business. It's like, what is this guy? Of course, now? of course <laughs> yeah. they will. Yeah, and then I just said no. And <laughs> hey, round of applause for saying no, right? <laughs> to 90 percent dilution. <laughs> All right, so let's let's keep going here with the story, okay? So you say no. Do you do anything in 2012, cap table wise? Nothing Please? in 2012. All right, take us to what happened in 2014. 2014, uh, we decided we would pick the process back up. We hired a banker. It was a small niche investment bank in, uh, in Seattle. Investment banks, by the way, I didn't know what investment bank was. Basically, it's someone who sells your business for you. They build the decks. They talk to the private equity and venture capital firms. They come to all your meetings. They're a, a broker, like a real estate broker, but for businesses. Um, so we hired a, an investment bank in Seattle. They built sort of the marketing material, started talking to private equity firms, and then we brought in our first institutional capital, a firm called TA Associates. Uh, 
who bought 50% of the business at a $275 million valuation. Pre or post? Pre. So how much did they put in? They put in $110 million and then $80 million of debt. Okay. Help us understand, just quickly touch on this, debt on the back of an equity round. Was it the SVB sort of deals back then, or who did you go with on the debt side? It was a firm called NXT Capital. Okay. So at this side, at that point, the, the company's $35 million of revenue. It's growing 60%, and it has 50% EBITDA margins. So it's very profitable. And so when private equity firms do a deal like that, they can increase their return if they fund a part, a part of the deal with debt. So instead of it all being equity that shares in the upside, they do a portion of it in equity and then they do the rest of it in debt that the company has an obligation for um, <clears throat> and the company pays the debt down, but it juices their return because the debt doesn't participate in the upside. Just reading faces to see if people are following. I think they got it. They'll, they'll follow along. All right. So between 2014 and 2018, uh, you grow the business. You grow the business. What was revenue in 2018? Revenue in 2018 would have been uh, like pre. We made an acquisition. So 2018 was post acquisition. So 170 million. And so was this LOI pre or post the 1.5 billion valuation? Was that pre? pre, pre? Uh, post the Rain King acquisition. Pre the Zoom Info acquisition. Okay, uh, you said post Rain King. Post Rain King. Pre Zoom Info. Yep. Did you know in this LOI that you were going to use a bunch of debt to go do the Zoom Info deal? No. We didn't know we were going to do the Zoom Info deal when we got this LOI. Okay, so explain. This is the same firm as the other firm who I wasn't going to do business with, but I really wanted to frame their bullshit offer <laughs> <laughs> next to one like a few years later that said $1.5 billion for a much less of a portion of the business. And so a few, la a few years later, the private equity, private equity firms or venture capital firms who come in, they have a hold period. They need to get in and out of investments usually within five years. And so within five years, whatever the business is going to do, double, triple the value, they have to exit either all of the business or a portion of the business within that period of time. And so this was you know, four years post the investment. We had done an M&A acquisition. So TA made this invest investment at $275 million, and now we're four years into the future. This offers for $1.5 billion. We ended up taking an offer at $2 billion, which uh, TA ended up selling a portion of what they owned and then holding on to the rest. And then the myself, my co-founder, and then we had an employee pool of... I should talk about that. We have an employee pool of shares all participated alongside that as well. This is actually interesting. So I had a co-founder. My co-founder left in 2015, left the business. When he left, um, he agreed to put 25% of his ownership, and I put 15% of my ownership into a pot that we set up for employees. And so private equity firms are notoriously not great at uh, giving equity down to the last employee. So we were able to take this fund of our shares and then give it out to employees so that they would participate in the upside of the business. And so every time TA or Carlisle or anybody sold, the employees also had an opportunity to sell in those transactions as well. And so when we were out in 2018 selling a portion of the business so TA could get their returns internally, the employees, TA sold 33% at this time. The, we asked the employees, what do you want to do? 
they were like, we'll sell 50% at $2 billion valuation. The company's worth $20 billion now, so it wasn't the best decision. Um, but they, so they sold 50% of what they owned, and people put a lot of money in the, in the bank at that Did point. Did you sell any of yours? I sold 33% of what I owned. At that time. At that time. So I had, and along the way, we missed a couple points, but along the way. Touch, touch on where you pulled capital out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what I was going to do. Um, so TA makes the acquisition in 2014, and then they do this thing called a recap, where they go out and they add additional debt to the business, and then dividend that debt out as a return to the shareholders. This is a weird thing. I didn't know what it was. Um, but we're like a year in, the business performed, and they said, hey, we have an opportunity to add another $25 million in debt, or 40, I, I honestly, I can't remember. And when, let's say it was 40. When we put $40 million in debt on the business, the business is super profitable, so it can continue to support paying that debt down. So we're going to put $40 million on. We're going to take $20 million as a return. And then you guys are also 50% owners. So Henry and Kirk will also take $20 million out of the business at that point, too. So that's an another capital return. That was the only debt recap we did. When you do those debt recaps, you get, like a, you get in a room. Have you ever seen a conference room at an airport? I remember like walking through airports and going like, who does a conference in an airport? Like, that sounds horrible. You do these conferences in an airport, debt conferences, that's, where, that's what they're there for. Uh, so you go to an airport conference room, and there's like a bunch of debt guys, people who work at SVB or NXT. There's like this group of companies that does kind of like mezzanine debt, debt that's kind of weird and takes specialization to understand. Uh, and then you pitch the business to these debt people, and then they decide what they would give you and at what rates. Remote teams are all the rage right now. In fact, many companies want to stay this way, even post-pandemic. And the reasoning's obvious. Hiring talent from anywhere in the world means you can bring on better talent. But the challenges are very real. How do you manage employees in other countries legally and easily? What about international payroll, employee benefits? What are taxes like in countries that are far away from where you're based? You need to understand all of this, including local paperwork and local compliance for all your remote employees. Now, two of the most successful remote companies, both GitLab and Zapier, have reached multi-billion dollar valuations, and they use a special tool, a secret portal, I like to call it, at remote.com. Remote's platform is easy to use for full-time employees, contractors, and your HR team. They help you scale your international team, your remote team, at a price you can afford. Now look, when I sign up sponsors, you guys know I like to get a great deal for our listeners. Otherwise, we won't run the sponsorship. Well, Remote has delivered. Sign up today and receive a 50% discount off your first employee for the first three months. Check out nathanlatka.com forward slash remote and enter promo code LATKA to get started. That's nathanlatka.com forward slash remote and promo code L-A-T-K-A. Check it out today before you miss out. And so, okay, so do you take capital out any other time before IPO? Yes. Um, post the ranking acquisition and before this, 
when you put the two businesses together, we made this acquisition of a company that was doing $40 million in revenue and $10 million of profitability. We acquired the business, and then three months later, it was doing $45 million and $35 million of profitability because we optimized and we cut where there was duplication. Is that mainly employees? It was half of it was employees. Okay. This uh, is Rain King. This is Rain King. And when we made that acquisition, because we had a whole bunch of additional profitability, we did another recap of the business, like a small $15 million. Okay. That was, a, that was the last time we did that. And then, so then take us through, you're now preparing yourself to go after one of your largest competitors. My, you know what my big question on this is? Yeah. If I was in your shoes, I mean, you read a lot of the regulators' reports on sort of going into the IPO, and, and I'm going, does Henry worry about people blocking this deal because you've because if you listen to all your presentations publicly you always say LinkedIn's our biggest competitor we compete with LinkedIn it's LinkedIn it's not Zoom info but privately ignore LinkedIn Zoom info was really like a, what 100 million in revenue against your 165 something like yep, that exactly so why'd you do this deal and how'd you deal with regulation was there any issues of maybe it not closing yes yeah, so when we did um, how disseminated is this is this like going on a public thing this was your interview with me. You can see you smiling. Yes, I remember that interview. This was your voice in 20, I think, something. No, I mean this, the, the oh, recording now. this will keep... Will keep uh, I don't believe you. <laughs> probably, <laughs> honestly, um, it's prob probably a smart idea. Don't say a, anything. That it's a very big market. Um, when we made the acquisition of Rain King, we actually, you, you have to get antitrust uh, approval. And so uh, we went, and, and the, regular, the regulators didn't love the ranking acquisition uh, because they felt very similar, two very similar companies. And so we actually went to Washington, D.C. We met with a panel of Department of Justice regulators in the antitrust division and included like lawyers and economists trying to figure out how anti-competitive these two companies coming together would be. They stretched it out until the last day of when they would basically deny or approve it. They approved it. Um, we put those two companies together, and then a year later, we acquired ZoomInfo, which was another player in the market. That process was not as difficult. As Rain King. As Rain King. Yep. Wow. Did that surprise you? It did surprise me. How did you get that deal done? You're buying Discover, I'm sorry, you're buying ZoomInfo, I believe, from a private equity firm. This is a complicated deal from a debt perspective. So what happens here, and the company wants to, you, you want to use debt as well as you can if you're a profitable business, because, and I'll do this point again, every time you use debt, debt doesn't participate in the upside of the company. And so if I take $100 of debt and it has a 5% interest rate, and then for three years, my company grows 100%, the, the debt doesn't get a 100% return. It gets a 15% return over those three years, and the company participates in the upside. So uh, when we went out to buy ZoomInfo, ZoomInfo was an $800 million acquisition, just under $800 million. And, uh, and we... It took me forever for you to get the freaking number. You didn't give that number out. Yeah, I don't think we talked about that number. We got close, though. Yeah, yeah, I it's got, close. I got pretty close. Yeah. It's actually like 785, so it's pretty close. And so we had to go out and raise, raise as much debt as we could, as much as the company could handle. And at, the, at these levels of debt, you actually have to go to Moody's and S&P and get them to rate your debt, you know, like junk-rated debt, 
Like, I didn't know what this was. Um, and you, like, go to S&P, and you go to Moody's, and you do the same pitch, and then they decide the rating of your debt. And based on the rating of your debt, a whole bunch of other people buy the debt at certain rates. What happened here was we ran out of debt room. <laughs> like, we took as much debt as we possibly could. Which was how much? Which was $1.2 billion we needed. Against how much of profit? Um, at that, at the, with, with the combined business, you would have had about $100 million of profitability. So it was like 13 times levered, but less than that in the future. It's a lot. Um, and, um, and so, but there was no more room. So you, you could raise debt up to like uh, $900 million, and then you had a hole. You had a $300 million hole in getting the deal done. And so Carlisle, who, was, who came in in 2018, the Carlisle Group, stepped in and took a thing called preferred equity, which is equity that looks like equity but acts like debt. Jeez, it's like I'm a finance guy now. It's <laughs> disgusting. I wasn't going to talk about your tie. <laughs> um, I was listening to you describe the bankers in the airport conference room. I'm going, he's trying very hard not to say negative things about these bankers. The, so it's, it's, it's kind of debt, but it, it's, it's debt that gets a higher return. And that's really hard debt to get, especially when you, when you put it behind like a billion dollars of other debt. But Carlisle stepped in, and so then we bought ZoomInfo with $1.2 billion of debt um, and started operating the business. And So $1.2 billion against how much of their revenue? What multiple did you pay for ZoomInfo? Uh, ZoomInfo is doing $100 million of revenue, 105 So that feel expensive it, at the time, 12x? Yes. Yeah. I mean, yes. what Vista's deals are usually like 7.5, 7.8, like 9x. This That's was a high ex- price. Yeah, it was a high price. And the funny thing, funny... A year later, I had a, a year earlier, I had an opportunity to buy Zoom Info for $240 million, and I passed. And that might feel like a bad decision, like, oh, that was dumb. He had to pay $800 million one year later. It wasn't a bad decision. Like, the business wasn't ready to take on that acquisition, and we would have fumbled it. A year later, we were in a much better place. But a private equity firm came in at $240 million that year before, and they're happy to hold the investment for four to five years because that's the hold period they had. I had to come in a year into that hold and pay them for what they thought they would get four years into the future. And so they weren't going to transact with me unless I could tell them, like, I will pay you now for what, you be- what would be a great return three or four years from now. Heck of a story there. Uh, so sort of moving forward, were you, did you already know at this point, obviously, you're going to IPO when you're doing this Minfo deal? No. You didn't? Okay. No. Uh, I thought we were putting two great private companies together, and three months in, it went really well. The integration went really well. The M&A was really positive. Everywhere we thought we had upside, we did and more. And so it was this really exciting time in the business. Three months into the acquisition, the board went, hey... Maybe you should IPO. And I went like, well, I'm kind of putting two companies together right now. And so I don't know how I'm going to find time to set up for IPO. But they didn't care. (laughs) So we started the pathway to IPO the business. And so talk us through, there's sort of pre-IPO, Henry. Well, there's a lot of Henry. So there's pre-IPO, then there's post-IPO. Talk to us about some of the key metrics you were looking at going into the IPO. Um, So going into the IPO, 
you know, we track everything. Um, so we obviously on the on the retention side, we're looking at net renewal rate, net retention rate, upsell dollars. We're looking at different products that we sell and how those are being sold. We're looking at how products are being adopted across the customer base, how they're getting implemented. On the new business side, we're looking at the top of the lead funnel. How many leads are we generating? How many of those are converting to appointments? How many of those are converting to good fit demos and opportunities? And how many of those are closing? And then we get a daily pacing report, which tells us like based on this month, we expect to close these dollars, and where are we day over day over day over day, um, and how are we pacing against that target, and then any numbers that are off every single day. The only unique thing pre to post IPO is that in the, in the IPO world, in the public company world, uh, analysts and investors like the billings number. And we never tracked billings internally. What, is that billing, what does that mean? Billings is basically how much have you sent an invoice out for? And so if I sold a deal, how, however many deals I've been able to send an invoice out for, however many dollars I could send an invoice out for, that's your billings number. Wait, Henry, real quick. Raise your hand if you've ever sent an invoice and it hasn't been paid. So can't you just send out a bunch of invoices? I mean, you can't. I mean, you don't. They're actually sold deals. You they're think they're sold, sold deals. but they don't. How do you control actually, like, it's not well, money. You yet. have like a bad debt expense that investors understand. So some portion of your dollars never get paid. And so they can discount against that. The problem with billing, well, the reason why billings became important for our company post IPO is that we weren't, we don't release an ARR number. We don't tell investors what the, uh, the, AR, the, the ARR number is. And instead, we just tell them the revenue number. The revenue number is a lagging indicator, right? Or it's a, it's a lagging indicator. So if I sell a whole bunch of deals in March, only a third of that actually shows up in revenue in that quarter, or less if it's at the end of March. So revenue is always lagging. Well, billings, what I actually sent invoices out for, is something that they could get a feel for what you actually sold in the quarter. And the problem, we went... We IPO'd in, in the middle of the pandemic, and one of the things that happened to us was customers wanted more flexible payment terms. And so instead of sending annual, selling annual upfront subscriptions, we started selling like monthly or quarterly. Well, that has a big billings issue, right? Because I'm not sending you an invoice for your whole term. I'm sending you a one-month invoice or one-quarter invoice. Sorry, explain why you did that again because everyone here is going, wait, I thought you'd do annual upfront, collect cash, no CAC issues. Why were you doing this again? Only because in the middle of the pandemic, people wanted more flexible payment terms. We had never done that before. And so all of a sudden, we started doing this thing that complicated the billings number. So my first earnings report, which I was like really proud of, was like, hit all our numbers, totally crushed it, like carry me out of the room. Uh... The analysts were like... Don't go on CNBC, look like this. Yeah, billings, yeah. billings, 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 billings. What's up with billings? And I was like, we don't even... We don't, we don't, we don't look at billings. Now we look at billings. <laughs> <laughs> you sent me a really funny email because I put out in my newsletter, I said, like, I think this guy might be an IPO watch list. I think if they do, it'll be like $5 billion. I would go the next morning, I get an email from you, and it was something long... I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, it was something like, why not 10 or something? Is that what you said? It was something Probably, like that. Yeah. It was literally like a one sentence, subject line only. And it was like, why not 10 would be question mark. And I wrote back and said, well, here's my math. Here's my analysis. And of course, I'm wrong, right? So did you expect this on day one? 
Well, people were telling us at this point that like this was an amazing company and the IPO markets were going to be really excited about seeing it come out. So we expected that the company was going to go out around 8 billion. Um and but I did we didn't expect I didn't expect it was going to it was going to rocket the way that it did the first day. And and any I mean there are some people in here with 50 to 100 million bucks in revenue that are hiring the CFO that might be thinking about the IPO. I mean, would you do anything different? Like, is it okay that you undervalue or that you th- it's basically doubled? Yeah, there's gonna you're gonna read articles that say like, oh, the pop on day one, like that just means you like did a bad job of pricing your IPO. It's not really true. Like, we had the best advisors, the best people around the table on this. You don't really want an IPO that doesn't go up on the first day, it creates like bad issues and morale issues for your team. You want a successful IPO, and ultimately. The, 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 the trick is we didn't sell 100% of the company in the IPO. We sold like 10% of the shares in the IPO. And that's how all companies are. They don't sell the whole company in the IPO. Like we're publicly traded, but most of the shares are privately held. Um, so you can do a small amount in the IPO, get a kick, get a bunch of press and excitement about it, and then downstream you sell the rest of the shares at a higher value. And so, so you go to the IPO, you do well. By the way, we're going to talk about founder dilution uh, later on, I think tomorrow, uh, where we talk about some SaaS founders when they went public and how much they still owned of the company. And some of these are very small numbers, 2 2.5%. You were able to optimize a bit here. Are you comfortable sharing sort of how much you owned at IPO? Yeah. Do you have it? Uh, I can like tell 10%, you off the top. It's about 10%. Yeah, it's like 12%, yeah. actually. Yeah. What do you do? I have the best ones in my There's head. There's like, it's the, the employee bonus. It's complicated, but I had 2% somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So um, talk to us quickly as we wrap up here about Zoom Info today and what's next. Yeah, so a couple things. One, if you get to like $10 million of ARR, you don't have a great CFO, you should probably get yourself a great CFO. And you're probably thinking, because I was you, like I got a guy who does the books and sends the invoices and does the bank stuff. Like what do I need a big expensive CFO for? What's big expensive? Uh, probably three hundred thousand. You paid your that for that higher the for first you. one probably two fifty three hundred. Okay, it's worth every penny if you get the right CFO. The great CFOs are business strategists, and they help you understand the rhythm of the business. They help you see where to invest behind the company and how the business operates. And you have a feel for it because you're a founder. CFO makes your life a million times easier. Don't you know? Don't wait too long. For that hire, um, look, we're public. The company's growing 60% a year. It's doing it profitably at 40% operating margins. We've done 12 acquisitions in our history. We'll continue to do M&A. Who are you buying next? <laughs> <laughs> I try. You used to tell me everything. A little YouTube recording. Now nothing. Yeah, didn't you know? For what it's worth, Nathan has the best content on this stuff. It's why I'm here. It's why I respond to his emails. It's the most, it's the most dead-on content. Um, and the way he asks questions in interviews, like nobody really understands the SaaS space well enough to articulate questions the way he does. Um, which I think, by the way, is why people come on and why they like share information because usually you're talking to like an analyst who doesn't understand your business or a journalist who really doesn't understand like business period. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we're going to continue to grow the business. We help sales marketers and recruiters uh, hit their numbers, find the best candidates, 
Um, it's a SaaS platform. It's an annual subscription. There are multi, multiple dimensions of it. How, how many are there customers here? Raise your hand if you use Zoom Info. Yeah, thank you nice. guys very much. And you guys should, they've got a booth right outside in the Nourish area. You should definitely chat more. You've got some interesting new products coming out as well. But uh, again, Henry, incredible growth story here. Anything you want to sneak in that I didn't ask? No, but maybe just a piece of advice. Please. Like uh, someone asked me the other day if I'm having fun. I'm not, <laughs> like, by the way. The job is just too hard. It is just too hard. There are too many moving pieces. It is not fun. I am fulfilled. I am challenged. I would never do, I have, there's nothing else I would want to do professionally, but it's not fun. And so I respect everything that you guys are doing. It is a hard job. You should embrace it. It does not get any easier. It's hard all the way through, um, but it is the best thing I could ever imagine doing. Guys, Henry Shuck, Zoom Info, give it up. <laughs>